0: We're going to read together Matthew 28, and we'll read verses 16 to 20. And The Word of God says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You remember last couple of weeks, we were looking at Matthew chapter 1, and the birth of the Lord Jesus, and we saw there how uh, Jesus was born the son of Abraham, and we saw how he is the way in which all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And Matthew uses that phrase in the beginning of his book to kind of give you a long foreshadow, a long look ahead to where he's going to finish up. And where he finishes up with is the gospel being taken to all the nations of the world. And we know the story of Matthew. We know the story of the gospel. The Lord Jesus came and he preached and taught and healed and cleansed lepers and so on. At the very end there, he went to the cross And there he purchased our salvation with his own blood. And after he had been raised, he sends his disciples to go ahead of him and meet him at this place in Galilee. And here he gives them the great commission. He gives them their final directions, what they are now to do and to carry on and continue the ministry that he has started. And this text is often called the Great Commission. In fact, my Bible has a little title printed above the text, simply the Great Commission. But making disciples happens in a narrow context of the individual believer's relationship to the Lord and in the wider context of the corporate church in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now from our reading in Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 to 13, we saw that Isaiah was brought into a relationship with the Lord. He recognized God in all of his holiness. He recognized his own sin. He cried out, woe is me. And God dealt with his sin. And then God makes that great call, who will go for us and whom shall I send? And of course, Isaiah, as you know, with his still burned lips, opens his mouth and says, here I am. Send me. And the same idea here, we have this, the, the, the context by which we go and make disciples, the context by which we go and preach the gospel is the context of a relationship between us and our Lord Jesus Christ. And the passage I want to consider is this, so we can see it. If we look closely, we'll see that the Great Commission is set into the context of a relationship with Christ and our Lord. In our text, we see Jesus or the disciples are either doing or receiving the action in relation to each other. The commission itself is an act of obedience toward Jesus Christ. Our ongoing attitudes and actions toward Christ or our receiving Christ's attitudes and directions is in fact a relationship. We have been called into a saving fellowship and relationship with Christ. He did not save us simply to do the work of Christianity. Neither did Christ save us to simply sit back doing nothing other than enjoying sweet fellowship with Christ. Neither extreme is correct, but from sweet, joyful, intimate fellowship with Jesus Christ comes the call to action for Christ and with it comes our joy in doing for Christ. The more time we spend with Him, the more our heart's desire is to serve Him and honor Him and worship Him. In many ways, it's like when you get married. You spend some time with your girlfriend or your boyfriend and that love begins to grow. And the engagement is made and the marriage relationship commences. And the more time you spend with that other person, the more in love with them that you spend. And and it's pretty soon everywhere you go, you're so proud and you're so joyful to say, this is my wife. This is the, the one whom my soul loves. And it's exactly the same in our relationship with Christ. As we spend time with him, as we enjoy his presence, it pretty soon happens that we can't help but talk about the one who is the lover of our souls. We can't help but spend time talking about the one in whom we delight. Now the text describes... The disciples relationship with Christ. If you notice in verse 16, he describes how the disciples obey Jesus Christ, their master. They go where he directed them to go. And then in verse 17, we can see the disciples are worshiping Jesus, their Lord and their God. And then again in verse 17, we see the disciples are listening to Jesus, their teacher, the one, the master. And in verse 17 again, we see the disciples growing in their understanding and relationship of Jesus. And you say, how does that work? Basically, belief mixed with some doubt at the beginning becomes greater belief and less doubt. And now that is kind of the outline for the next message, not today's message. Uh, we'll be away next week, but the following week we're going to take up that exact point. The disciples' relationship with their Lord. But what I want to look at today is the Lord's relationship with His disciples. Initially, I tried to pack it all into one sermon, but I would have to speak faster than usual and take more time than I usually take, and I thought that probably won't go over well, so I won't do that. So we'll split into two and we'll enjoy it slowly together. The Lord's relationship with His disciples, notice that in verse 17, Jesus directed or commanded His disciples to go to the mountain. In verse 18, Jesus came close to his disciples. There was a nearness there. In verse 18, again, Jesus spoke to his disciples. In verse 19 and verse 20, Jesus commanded his disciples, and then he gives them his abiding promise that he will be with them throughout all the days to the end of the age. The Great Commission is to be going into the world to make disciples. It must be. It absolutely must be the outflow of a thriving, growing, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. If it's not, we will never have the motivation. We'll never have the strength. We'll never have the zeal. We'll never have the joy. We won't know the one whom we are witnessing about. It must start with a thriving, strong relationship with Jesus Christ. So the first part of the message is this, the Lord's relationship with his disciples. So want you notice, first of all, that Christ comes near to his disciples in verse 18. Literally in the Greek, it is Jesus is approaching. And as he's approaching, he's beginning to speak to them. And the context of their situation in the text He comes near to his disciples to put aside their fears and reassure them slightly before he speaks to them. But in a wider context, it tells us something of our relationship with the Lord Jesus. Our relationship is one of increasing intimacy that grows as our obedience and our love grows for him. The more we walk with Him, the more we walk beside Him, the more we follow Christ, the more we learn of Him, what He is like, the more He reveals of Himself to us in many ways. Like I said a minute ago, our relationship is similar to a marriage. Over time, the love and joy in Him becomes deeper and deeper. The more we learn of Him, the more we know Him, the more we want to know more of Him. It's like an ever-widening funnel. The deeper you go, the higher you go, the more there is to see. The more you see, the more your appetite is whetted for even more. And that relationship grows and grows and grows and grows. I love the way that Christ is described as in the church as bride and husband there. Because we've been married for 25 years, Heather and I. And I think, wow, I love my wife today more than I ever thought possible 25 years ago when I stood at the altar and we made our vows to each other. And back then, I thought I was madly in love with Heather, and now I know that I hardly knew her back then. Can you imagine what it's like with a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? That intimacy will never stop, it'll never stop growing and increasing. The Lord Jesus came near to his disciples, and our relationship with Christ grows as we spend time with him. Notice, secondly, Christ communes with his disciples in verse 18. It is a relationship of communion and fellowship. Christ has spoken to us. He spoke to them with his mouth, but he also spoke to us through the scriptures. Christ has given to us everything we need to know in his word. Christ still speaks to us individually today through his word. Now, Be careful here. I don't mean that Christ gives us new revelation that we should write down and record in the back of our Bible. What I mean is, as we spend time in His Word, studying and meditating and soaking up the Word of God, Christ speaks. He brings to mind things that we need to know and hear. He brings alongside encouraging texts. He also brings alongside rebuking texts because He wants to correct us. But Christ speaks to His people. The one question we have to ask ourselves is, do we desire to hear Christ's voice in our own hearts? How easy it is to find something other than the word of God, something other than time in Christ's presence. How often do we rush into our prayer time and we're so busy giving all our list of requests and demands and problems and what Christ really wants from us is to sit silently in his presence and just enjoy the wonder of who he is. Uh, my in-laws, God bless them, they're both with the Lord now. Lord, they used to love to spend time and they, they didn't watch TV. They didn't own a TV in their house and they would occasionally put on music and they would just spend hours together sitting in their chairs side by side, him doing his, his craft work and her working on something. But there was a relationship there. They didn't need to speak to each other. There was a communion there. And of course, we know that's only one side of it. Yes, we do definitely need to speak with and Christ speaks to us. But Christ also desires that deep communion with him, that deep fellowship of soul with soul, spirit with spirit in that sense. But the question is, do we desire to hear his voice? Do we desire to spend time with him? I know from my own walk how easy it is to let the busyness even of ministry and life and family and all that other stuff that so fills our life to crowd and push out. I was reminded in a sermon again that that Jesus got up early on that morning after he had healed Peter's mother-in-law. And he spent the whole evening after Sabbath. So after the sun went down in the dark hours, he was healing one person after another, after another, after another. And the Bible says that early the next morning, while it was still dark, while people were still sleeping, Jesus got up and departed to a lonely place. And there he was praying. And the disciples came and grabbed him. And I can imagine them reaching out and grabbing onto his robe and kind of give him a shake. Lord, everybody's looking for you. There's so much work to do. the, The healing has just begun. We've got to go back. And Jesus knew he needed to be with his father, even though everybody was looking for him and everybody wanted him to do something. Brothers and sisters, it is a fellowship, a relationship of communion and fellowship with our Lord. He came near to them and he spoke to them. He speaks to us through his word. The question is, are we listening? Notice thirdly, Christ is in authority over his disciples. What's the first thing he tells them as he comes near? He says in verse number 18, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. Sketch this out in full view for us. It says that Daniel saw in the night visions. And behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Paul, writing in Ephesians chapter 1, said this, that he, God, worked his power in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Christ has been given all authority. Matthew 11, 27, Jesus himself said it. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. Listen, authority is not assumed. It is given by one who is in a higher level of authority over us. God the Father is in authority over his Son, and he gave him, he laid on his shoulders all the authority over all the world, over all creation. God has placed his authority on Christ. He is Lord over all. He is the King of all kings. Every government institution in every single land is under the authority of God Almighty. Now, they may not recognize it, and they may not operate as such, But it is there, and the failure of those nations, including ours, to recognize that authority will bring great cost and great judgment. But Christ has authority over all. He is the king over all kings. He is our Lord. He is an authority over us. And that means for us as disciples in relationship to Christ, there is a demand on us that we live our lives in submission to him. He is our Lord. He is not our equal. The implication is that we are to live in reverent fear of Jesus Christ, our Lord. You remember the story of Isaiah 6? Read just a little while ago. He says, woe is me. I've said it before, maybe even here. But I think Isaiah, when he was in that moment, when God's glory was all revealed, he wasn't standing there saying it. He was curled up in a ball with his hands over his head saying, woe is me. There was a fear of God in his eyes. Brothers and sisters, he is our Lord. He is not our equal. He is our Lord, but yet in God's gentle, kind grace, he calls himself our brother. What a wonderful thing, brothers and sisters, that we call we call each other brothers and sisters all the time. He is our great brother or older brother in that sense, and we don't refer to him. I've heard some people say, and I know what they mean, but they say, he's my bro. And I think, oh, just, yeah, I understand what you're trying to say, but you know what? He is the living God, absolutely holy. He may refer to himself as our brother, but we must remember to refer to him as our Lord and our Savior. In God's gentle grace, he calls himself our brother. We are in a family relationship with Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters by blood, not our mother's blood, but by the blood of the Lord Jesus. He is our Lord in authority over us, yet we've been called into a relationship with him. He's our Lord, and yet... And yet we can run to him for strength and help and counsel and shelter and protection. He's our Lord, but he's a kind and gracious and loving Lord. I love the scene in the Bible when Jesus has the little ones come to him, little kids. And I'm convinced, being little kids, and him being the kind, gentle Lord, even though he is absolutely, truly God, they climbed up on his clothes, and I bet like little kids do, The kids get a hold of my dodgy beard and they will kind of rub their hands. It feels finer than their skin, I guess. And I think they did just the same thing. I don't think Jesus got mad at them. I think he just enjoyed the little ones close to him. We have a wonderful family relationship with our Savior. He is our Lord Jesus Christ in authority over us. Whatever else discipleship may be, it is first of all a relationship of submission to our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice fourthly, Jesus commands or Christ commands his discipleship. It is a relationship of direction and obedience. In the text, we got two examples of this. The first example in verse 16, Jesus directed them to go to a particular mountain. In Matthew 26, 32, he says, but after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And then in Matthew 28, verse 10, Jesus said to them, the women, do not be afraid. Go and tell my disciples to go to Galilee and there they will see me. He gave directions to his disciples and they obeyed him. The Bible says in John 10 verses 3 and 4, speaking about the good shepherd and all of his sheep, all of his disciples. He says, uh, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. It is a relationship of commands. He does make commands and He does tell us the things that we must do. But it's a loving, kind, gentle relationship. But it is one where Christ commands His people to follow Him. Brothers and sisters in Christ, notice two things here. He commands them first of all to meet them in this place. They obey. And then He commands them to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. You say, what's the point? He that is faithful in little things will be faithful in much. If you are faithful in the things, the small things that you can see that God has given you to do, I guarantee you the time will come when God will lay his hand upon you and give you so much more to do and so much greater to do and the responsibility will increase. But there's a necessity for us to be faithful in the little things because when we're faithful in the little things, we learn the obedience that's required when God puts greater and greater and greater faith tests in front of us. He was commanding his disciples and they were obeying him. The second example, of course, we see in verses 19 and 20. Christ commands us to make disciples. This is not a suggestion. It's not an option. It's not something we can say, well, you know, when I have time or when I get older or when I do this, uh, then I'll carry on with this command. This command is, and literally the way it reads in verse 19... Go in our English Bibles is always the middle of, or the the beginning of the sentence, sorry, and it's stated as a command. In the Greek, it's actually in the middle of a sentence and it's stated as a participle. You say, what's a participle? It's one of those ing words, right? So literally it reads, going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. Right? So the, the going, baptizing, and teaching are all simultaneous commands to the main command, which is make disciples. Right? So we make a great emphasis on go, but that's actually a, a subordinate point. You say, who cares? I didn't come to church for an English grammar lesson, so what? And the point is this. It isn't that we have to get up and go to over the seas, it isn't that we have to get up and go somewhere far off in order to serve Christ and make disciples. The idea of going, make disciples, is everywhere you go, as you go, as you are doing the thing that you have been called and given to do, make disciples. So if you're a fisherman, go out and catch fish. And while you're doing it, throw out the net to catch disciples and make, catch men for Christ. If you're an accountant, as you go, as you're doing your accounting and counting beans and putting all the numbers in the right column and all of that, as you're doing that, you're making disciples. You're using the opportunities that God has given you wherever He has placed you. Don't worry about the where so much. Worry about what you are doing where God has placed you. You say, you know, my job is to be a policeman, for example. I don't have time to make disciples do you know what? The opportunities to share the gospel in a three second moment of handing someone a tract. The opportunity to share the gospel in a simple prayer that you pray with somebody. The opportunity to share the gospel as you come alongside, like I've told you before, experience I had working alongside men that were rough in carpentry and using those moments when you're nailing off a you know siding or something, or weatherboard, whatever you call it over here, or nailing off the flooring, which is a long, painful, boring job, and there's two guys working together and you're pounding away. The opportunity is to talk. And you begin to discuss back and forth and you bring up topics about Christ and you can just simply offer a 30-second share of the gospel. And all you say, but all I'm doing is sharing a tract. All I'm doing is, is handing a, you know, a gospel message to someone for two seconds or a minute. But you know what? God takes that little seed that you sow... And he brings someone else alongside, somewhere else, and they hear it again. Or maybe he brings someone else alongside to ask some very pointed questions. God is in the business of using his people in all kinds of ways to make disciples. Jesus commands us to make disciples. And how are we to do it? We're to do it, number one, by preaching the good news. In Luke 24, it's a similar passage in the sense it's right before Jesus departs. He's speaking to them, and they record this. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and Jesus said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. In Acts 1 verse 8. Similar kind of scene, right before Jesus goes back to glory, he tells them, excuse me, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We make disciples by calling men and women to join us in following Christ. So we show, we allow them to see our relationship with the Lord Jesus. I heard uh, Tim Keller uh, just caught part of a message. He was, I know it was a Q and A, a question and answer thing, and he was talking about the revival they experienced in the colleges in America back in the uh, late '60s and early '70s. And he said we had a, a ministry like a campus crusade kind of thing, like a college ministry, and we had a college group, and we met together at lunch hour in the, on the college campuses to pray and sing hymns and and read the Word together. He said, people started getting saved one after the other, after the other. And he said, we never did any kind of evangelism, but there was an excitement amongst those who were being saved about their new relationship with Jesus Christ. And that excitement was a natural attraction. And he said, before we knew it, people were coming in. What's going on here? What's happening? We've heard about the strange things that are happening in this group. And they started sharing the gospel and their revival spread through those college campuses. People were in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. They were entering a new relationship with Christ, their Savior. And it was just a natural outflow of that love and relationship. And they were seeing so many people saved. Genuinely saved. Our witness for Christ is the outflow of our relationship with Christ. If it's forced and put on, the unbeliever out there, they see right through it. But if you're talking about the one that you love, you go and tell somebody about your wife. Very rarely people argue with you. Oh, your wife's not like that. No, no, no. You know, They don't do that because they can see the genuineness in your speech that it's love for your wife and you're talking about her or your husband or whatever it is. And so the relationship that we have with Christ becomes a natural outflow. Sorry, that is the source. The outflow is we speak about Christ and we tell about the great things Christ has done for us. We proclaim that Christ has come in flesh and blood. That's the glory of Christ, truly God and truly man. We proclaim and tell and share and give tracks out to describe that Jesus Christ died to defeat sin and death. We tell them that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, displaying that he is the Son of God with power. We tell them that Christ has been made both, sorry, Jesus has been made both Lord and Christ. And we tell them that God now calls all people to repent and believe from Acts chapter 17, verse 30. That Christ, we tell them this. We tell them that Jesus is returning. When was the last time you went out in a gospel type of work and said, did you know that Jesus Christ is coming back? We we always focus, I just, I don't know what it is, but we always focus on the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. We think that's the key of the gospel. But you know what else the other half is? It's so important. He's coming back. And the authority that he had given to him because of what he did. And his authority to call mankind into repentance and faith. When he comes back, he will gather all those that are his sheep. And he will separate the sheep from the goats. Brothers and sisters, we need to be telling people that the good news is Christ offers salvation. Christ is an authority over all The universe and Christ is coming back to gather his sheep. But we also need to tell them that Christ is coming back and the goats will be separated eternally from him. There is good news, there is bad news, and then there's even good news again that there is hope of salvation because of what Christ does. And we need to tell them that. We make disciples by calling and bringing people into the same obedient submission to God that we are already living in. So, brothers and sisters, the reason why the relationship must be the core point, it must be the starting point. Because if we're not living in a submissive, obedient relationship to Christ, when we open our mouth to speak the gospel, the world will see straight through it. And trust me, they will call you on it. I know because I've been called on it. It's a very uncomfortable moment. I say it to my own shame and embarrassment, but it's true. Discipleship is about entering into a relationship bound together with a loving, kind, and gracious master. Making disciples is about us who are already walking with Christ, coming alongside others and walking with them, telling them and teaching them what it means to live in a relationship with Jesus Christ. We share our relationship with Christ as a means of teaching by example what it means to follow and walk with Christ. Notice he also says we are to baptize them. So we make disciples and we baptize them in the name of the triune God. He makes the point here in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We baptize believers who desire to publicly declare that they are born-again followers in submission to Christ. I'm going to take two seconds, just, just a little sidestep here. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Here's my next question to you. Have you been baptized? You say, no, or maybe you have. If your answer is no, let me ask you this: Why not?" You say, why, why do I have to be Why do I have to go into a tank with my clothes on and get dumped under the water and pulled up again and make a big splashing mess for everybody to see? Because going into the tank and getting baptized is a public demonstration of your faith and your obedience to Christ. You cannot. In good conscience, declare that you are living in submission and obedience to Christ when you have disobeyed his first command for every believer, which is to believe and be baptized. They go together. And so I encourage you, brother and sister, if you have not been baptized, there's opportunity. We would love to baptize you. The first steps, steps plural, of every disciple must that we all must take to obediently, obediently follow Christ is this. Number one, we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We're repenting of sin, turning our backs on it. Now, notice something else here. One of you pointed this out to me. It was really good. They said, you notice that John the Baptist, when the, the soldiers, the Pharisees came down to be baptized, he said, who warned you to flee from the wrath of God? Go and bear fruit in keeping with Repentance. In other words, he said, before you come down here for baptism, you make sure that you are repenting of sin, that this isn't just a whim that you're following. So brothers and sisters, it is a step of obedience, but it's to be taken thoughtfully and carefully in full regard of what you are saying to all the church and all the people. I follow Christ. If your life is not being lived in submission and obedience to Christ, watch out because God disciplines those He loves to bring them into a right walk with Him, okay? So we bear fruits in keeping with repentance and we receive, we are baptized as a public display of our obedience, submission and faith in Christ for salvation. We're not saved by being baptized. There are some groups that would teach something like that. That's not true. Okay, The Bible does not say that. We are saved, and then we are baptized as evidence, as a witness, as a public testimony to our salvation. Moving on. Notice that Christ commands us to teach disciples to obey all things that Christ commanded. Who? Us. Right? Teach uh This is verse number 20. He says, Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. <laughs> Watch out. Be really careful, especially if you're a pastor or a teacher or an elder, anybody who opens his mouth to share the word of God, watch out that what you teach is what you do. He says, you teach them all things I commanded you to do. Again, there's that consistency. There's that relationship of obedience to Christ that must be the core, the root of all that we do in making disciples of all nations. We are are commanded to do these things in obedience, but in a relationship, out of the outflow of a relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. He sent us to continue an unfinished task. The Lord Jesus began to do all these things. The Bible says as he taught and he preached and he healed and he cleansed, and he got all the way through his work that he had to do, that God had given him to do, but that other work wasn't finished. His role in it on earth was done. And so he turned around, he gathered those 11 men together and he said, there it is. This is the work that God has given you to do. Going, make disciples, baptize them and teach them. And I am with you. And he left them to finish the work. I probably told you the story before. The Lord Jesus goes home to heaven and one of the angels meets him and he says, master, what now? What happens next? And he points down. He says, well, you see those 11 men? And the angel looks down. Yeah. He says, well, now it's up to them. And the angel leans over. Looks back. Really? Them? <laughs> yeah, them. And looks down at Noble Park Baptist and says, them? Yeah, Them. What's the point? The point, two things. Number one, God has given us a job to do, a task to fulfill. But he's not left us. The angel didn't pick up on one thing. It's just a story. Nothing true about it. Makes a point. The angel didn't pick up on the fact that the Spirit of God had been given to those men down there. And God would do his work through them. And God takes... These 11 men, we're going to see as we get after this other half of this message in in, uh, two weeks' time, we're going to dive into the book of Acts. And we're going to see how God uses these 11 men and begins to build the church. We look through the first uh, early chapters of the book of Acts. And God uses weak and failing human beings, you and I. There was nothing special about those disciples. There's nothing special about you and I that sets them apart from us or us apart from them. We are all men and women saved by grace, filled with the Spirit of God, given a job to do. And God says, going, make disciples, teaching them and baptizing them. And then he makes one last thing in his relationship. And this is the most beautiful one of all. He says, fifthly and lastly, in verse number 20, and behold, that's the command, by the way. Behold is actually a command. Look, see, observe, observe. I am with you always to the end of the age. And I was sitting there in my chair yesterday afternoon just thinking about what that meant, kind of unpack the implications of this. Our relationship with Jesus Christ is an eternal relationship. Every other relationship we enter has a set ending point. Even my marriage, as wonderful as it has been for 25 years, fast-flown-by years, will sadly come to an end. Sad for me. And parent and child relationships begin and will end. Brother and sister relationships, they have a beginning point and they have an ending point. But our relationship, our fellowship, our communion with the Lord Jesus Christ will never, ever come to an end. There will never come a moment when he leaves us entirely. There may come moments when he leaves us for a time. I don't mean like takes the spirit away. I mean distance comes up between us for reasons of our sin and to teach us how to trust him even more. There are reasons like that, but he will never ever entirely leave us. He is with us now, today, tomorrow, next week, next month, next decade, all of eternity. I am with you. You cannot lose Christ. You cannot lose your salvation. By the way, if you're here and you believe that your salvation can be lost, please, please come talk to me. I'd love to show you the scriptures to show you that's not the case. Once saved, always truly, totally saved. You cannot lose your salvation. You cannot lose Christ. You cannot shake him off. You can never go anywhere without Him. From the prayer closet to the workplace, from the beside the deathbed of a loved one to a hospital operating theater, He is with us. Our life passes walking in time, growing to know Christ ever deeper, and there will come a moment when we pass out of time and into eternity, as Psalm 23 describes, and our faith will become sight. Oh, looking forward to this moment the distance that creates invisibility will dissolve into a permanent visibility. We were at the funeral for uh, Mr. Paquela, and uh, Heather was at her funeral for her dad. And I was thinking about both because I was preaching a one and close to my father-in-law and thinking about how that walk, and we're describing the scene in Psalm 23, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and I described for the, the Pacielas and all the rest of their family there that how many times he had walked down in the valley of the shadow of dark places and the Lord had been with him every step of the way all the way through those valleys he had never left his side I said, this valley was a little bit different. Henry walked down into the valley of the shadow of dark places and partway through the valley, what he had not been able to see with his eyes for all those years of walking with the Lord Jesus Christ, his eyes were open and all of a sudden he realized that the Lord Jesus Christ was standing right beside him and they walked on together, talking together as if nothing changed. And for him, he passed into eternity. And brothers and sisters, that's what our situation will be like. He says, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. And I'm convinced he means an eternal age there. I'm with you. You will not go into making disciples on your own. You don't go into a hospital operating theater on your own. You don't go into the death bed, the death room of a loved one on your own. You don't go into anything on your own. He's with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. The relationship that begins for us at the foot of the cross ceases not. What a comfort, Christian. What a tremendous comfort that nothing you go through, you go through on your own. I know some of you are facing some health scares. Maybe some financial crises. Maybe there's other issues in your life that you're struggling and there's there's a looming shadow hanging over you. Be assured of this. He is with you and he is in you, living out his life through you. You're not on your own. But for those of us who know not Christ, that life, that relationship is yet to begin. And it can begin today. The sin we all commit has separated us from God. But Christ died in our place shedding blood to wash us clean, wash you clean from sin, and a filthy conscience that keeps accusing you relentlessly. My question to you this morning is this. Do you want to know the reality of a cleansed conscience? Do you hate your sin knowing that it chains you to death and you cannot get rid of it? Christ has defeated sin and death for you. Do you want to be free from God's awful wrath? Christ loved you with an everlasting love and he has set you free if you believe in him. You can put away the idea of wrath. What were we singing before? No condemnation, now I dread. There's no condemnation. There's nothing left to face if Christ has saved us. Do you want to be free from God's wrath? Do you want to know the lover of your soul, the one who loved you with an everlasting love? Christ is calling you today, right here. He's inviting you to trust him, to repent of sin, to follow him. The question is, are you listening? Brother and sister in Christ, it's one thing to know it up here. You can have every fact and figure and bit of information. You can know all the verses and all the theology. But it's when you let go and cast yourself entirely upon Christ in faith, that's when you enter that relationship. And he comes alongside and he wraps his arms around you and he fills you with his spirit and makes you the promise, I'm with you, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. I will live my life through you. And you begin to walk by faith with the Lord Jesus. Someone asked me a question, or a very pointed question that Jesus asked. Mary and Martha walking along. Remember, they go down towards the tomb, and Jesus looks at her and says, Do you believe this? So that's my question to all of us. Do we believe this? Do we believe what the Scriptures teach us? He has invited us into a relationship. There is no such thing as real loneliness for the child of God. We have a wonderful Savior. He calls us into a relationship and sends us out to make disciples, not as a separate thing, but as one flowing out of the other. And it isn't a a drag, it isn't a hardship, it isn't a horrible thing. It's a joy because we're telling other people about the one whom we love. And we walk with our, I say it with great respect, our friend, the one who loved us even to the point of death. What an amazing Savior we have. Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray and then we'll have a benediction and that's it. Loving Heavenly Father, we come before you again, O God, and we give you thanks for you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. And Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you have been given all authority. All authority has been placed on you. You are Lord over all. You are the King of all kings. You are our Lord and our Savior. And Father, we want want to say that we love him. We love him who first loved us. We loved him who loved us even to the point of death and beyond. We love him who walks every single step of this life with us, side by side, carrying us as we go. And Father, we give give thanks that he is in us, living out his life through us. Father, we pray, we plead with you, O God, for this church again. Father, we pray that we would develop and build that relationship with you, one of submission and obedience, a relationship in communion with you, hearing you speak and responding in prayer. And Father, there is another whole side to this, the side of the disciples' relationship to the Lord, how we must respond. But Father, even in the, or this part of it, there is a response demanded of us to submit to our Lord, Father, we pray, I plead with you that you would work in every single heart of every person in this room. Father, for those who know you, but are holding back in submission and obedience in some area. Father, I plead with you that you would deal gently and graciously as a loving and a kind father to bring them to repentance of that issue, to begin to walk to continue walking in obedience, deeper obedience. Father, for the one in this room, one or two that do not know you, who do not know what it means to be forgiven of sin, do not know what it means to be free from the condemnation that God's holiness and his justice and his righteousness brings down upon them for their sin. Father, I plead with you by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would work in their lives. Father, I pray... I pray that you would give them no rest. Highlight to them their sin, but also highlight to them, display for them the glory and the loveliness of the Lord Jesus Christ who died on a cross to save them. But Father, has risen again. And Father, as we were saying, we look forward with great joy to the time when Jesus will return. And Father, we thank you that in that moment he will gather his sheep and he will call them to his side and he will separate the goats those who do not know, who have refused to submit in obedience to him. And Father, the horror of that statement, depart from me, I never knew you. And Father, all creation, the angels in heaven, the believing saints, and even those who are being cast into, an, into darkness and outer, away from you, Father, will declare that you are Lord, he is Lord, and he is right. Father, we pray, we plead with you that you would do a work and bring those who don't know you to know you. Father, we pray also as we drive home, as we drive down the streets of Noble Park into our own uh, communities and neighborhoods. Father, we pray that you would help us to see houses and neighbors and cars full of people, not just other Australians, but Father, full of people who do not know you. Father, greatly move us, shake us, O God, that we would know that there is a work to do, that, Father, we would get up off of our complacency and we would go out and preach the gospel. We would tell others about the one who loved us even to the point of death on a cross. Father, we plead with you, do a work here. Father, we pray with you that the spirit of God would have freedom to work in every single life, every heart. Change us, O God, make us more like Christ, we pray. And Father, I know even in praying those words, I know that will mean pain and hardship and difficulty for some. But Father, if out of those difficult circumstances that you take us through, you make us a little more like Christ, a little more in love with Christ, how much better, O God, to go through it for that end. Father, I ask you for these things. We ask you, O God, again. And we plead for you, plead with you, O God, for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.